Okay, so welcome to our new course on Jewish meditation. They tell a story of the Kotzke Rebbe, which was from the Hasidic dynasty, known for his wit and his uh, humor. And once he walked over to one of his congregants after the service, and he walks over to him and he says, Welcome back. The guy looks at him, Welcome back. I didn't go anywhere. So he says, Well, while you were praying, your mind traveled to Leipzig and back. So now I'm welcoming you back because you definitely weren't here when you were praying. Over the next few lessons, we're going to travel together through a journey of fascinating scenes and scenic pathways of the Jewish mind and meditative practices. And we're going to try to learn to be more deeply aware of ourselves and our surroundings. And therefore, we all want to make sure we're present during the class and understanding of where we are. And this course, just a little bit of an introduction of what we're going to be talking about in the next six weeks, is built primarily on the concepts of Jewish meditation and meditation based from the Jewish traditions and in the context of Jewish life. And alongside it, we're going to be exploring other concepts and ideas of Jewish thought, of spirituality, and being mindful. This course is not what you would call a uh, mini-retreat of meditation of kinds, where you come and you meditate for an hour and a half each week. Though we will be experiencing and uh, practicing and doing different types of meditations in different forms, but the goal is to learn about what Jewish meditation is and its role it plays in Jewish life. So in short, if I would have to describe what the next six weeks these classes would be about, they're more of an engaging hybrid of learning and applied practice of how it applies. They say a story, there was once these uh, two old friends were out for dinner, and they're asking, no, so how's your husband doing now that he retired? And he says, well, I don't know if it's retired, but he's unemployed. Well, what does he do? Is he still unemployed? He says, no, 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 not anymore. Well, that's good to hear, she says, that he's not unemployed. So what does he do all day? She says, what does he do all day? He meditates. So the good friend asks the other friend, meditate? What's that? She says, I'm not sure, but he sits around. I'm not sure, but it's better him sitting around doing nothing all day, right? But what is meditating? So I'm sure many of you in this room, when you hear the word meditation, have different ideas of what meditation can be. And I'm sure you heard meditation before. Maybe some of you experienced some type of form of meditation and did some type of meditation. And therefore, today we're going to be learning about Jewish meditation. So, we first would like to define what is meditation. What is the meditation that we're going to be talking about? And therefore, if you look at the name of the course, it's called Meditation from Sinai. And therefore, we're going to be talking about what that type of meditation is. If you were to close your eyes for a moment and think about a person meditating, what would that look like? A person closing his eyes, very good. But what initially, or sitting in this like pristine place with sloth music playing in the background and all of a sudden nice trees breezing, whatever it may be, and all of a sudden you have these different types of visions or even a chassid in prayer and deep meditative practice with his talus over his head, if you want to talk about that type of spiritual limitation. So the image that you have, whatever image you may be, is it right? Is it wrong? 
meditation actually has no set image. Because if you look in meditation, in the, Web- in the Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary, it defines meditation as the word meditate, to engage in a contemplation of reflection. Meditation comes from actually the Latin word to measure, to think, to contemplate, devise, to ponder. So whether or not you think of yourself in a person who has that contemplative or that patience to be able to think through it or not, whether you dwell in a problem in your life and you say that's meditation, meditation can be something that you give extra focus to, something when you're daydreaming about your upcoming vacation and all of a sudden you get excited, or any time you spend anything, any time on one particular concept, in essence what you're doing is meditating. So what is meditation? But most of our times is when we think about something, our mind wanders and goes into many different places and escapes to different areas. And therefore, when we slip into meditation sometimes without even intending to have the meditation. So what we're going to go is to use the power of thought intentionally, to be able to use the power of focus intentionally, to be able to take what our mind is usually doing but to actually zero it in and to see what we're doing. So where does Jewish meditation come from? Where does Jew- what does meditation have to do with Judaism? And why am I standing up here teaching as a rabbi about meditation? And is the question is, is meditation really a Jewish thing? And if meditation is really a Jewish thing, why does it seem like meditation was taken from different places? Have you ever seen the word meditation in the Torah? Have you seen the word meditation and prayer? Why didn't they teach you meditation then in Hebrew school if meditation is a Jewish thing, right? So in truth, the only way we can find anything that happens in this world is from the Torah. And I would say that meditation is probably as old as Judaism is in Judaism as well. And though many Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions have adapted or taken or copted meditation for their way of thinking, But its original form of ever meditation was even before Eastern religions ever came about. While Judaism has this rich history and a vibrant culture, we know that meditation has been part of it in every single way. And let's just take a few examples here. Number one, our forefathers. Anybody can tell me any any what was the job, what was the occupation, I should say, of our forefathers? Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, King David. They were all shepherds. Every single one of them. The only exception to the rule of the person that was not a shepherd was Joseph. And he was considered like a sore thumb because he was not a shepherd, because he was different from the rest of his brothers who were shepherds. But what was a shepherd? Why were they shepherds? So in text number one and page number three, you will see, it says as follows. The patriarchs chose to be shepherds so that they can be alone in the wilderness where the ear is clean and pure and they would be far from other people for the sake of secluding themselves in divine meditation. The patriarchs spent their time away from society, away from people, as you would have imagined this type of meditation would have been, to be someplace in the field that they would not have to deal with the people. So they can deal with the animals, the animals can just pasture, and they can sit there 
and glow and bask in God's glory. They had a certain spiritual awareness to deepen their relationship with God. They wanted to be away from society, away from the world, out in the field, just with the flock. So meditation technically started with the patriarchs. Another place we find meditation being something central in Jewish life is something that Jews do three times a day, on Shabbat four times a day, Yom Kippur five times a day, which is called prayer. In Hebrew, one of the things that the Talmud calls prayer is called avodah shebelev, a service of the heart. It is an inner cognitive and emotional experience that a person prays. It's not merely a lip service that we say pages A to B or pages 10 to 50. Actually, prayer is something that a person utilizes his heart to connect to God. In fact, the definition of the concept of prayer is taken from the word in Hebrew prayer, which is tefillah. The word tefillah in Hebrew tells us cementing a relationship with the divine. Tofel comes from the word to cement, to connect, to comprehend and bring together. It's an introspective experience of where a person can go through and exercise a self-judgment, asking God to listen to his prayers, connecting with a superior being, recognizing that there's something greater than himself. As we see the two types of terminologies that are used for the way of tefillah, which means to connect, one who glues an earthenware vessel together, or one who commits a crime against another, he will be judged, the word to filelo, judged by a judge. Both of these things are introspective ways of how a person can connect to prayer. Now, this is not a course on prayer, so we're not going to go into the details of prayer, and that's a separate subject, how one uses prayer for a meditative practice, and some of it we will touch upon. But the fact is, that though it may not be explicit in the prayer to meditate and say, hear, meditate, is because the entire prayer practice is a practice of meditation, focusing, zeroing in on the concepts of the Creator, of who God is. In fact, take it even a step further, if you want to talk about real meditation, in text number two, there's a quote from the Talmud of Brachot. The Talmud is the beginning of the oral law describing of how the people in those times would pray. And the Talmud says as follows, text number 2 on page 5. We must approach prayer with reverence. The early pious sages would pause in thought for one hour so they can focus their hearts to God and only then pray. That means the pious people at the time had a daily regimen of a meditative practice that would connect their prayers to God. They would sit for an hour before prayer, and according to some an hour after prayer, that means three times a day, total of six hours they would spend just in meditating about the prayer, that's besides the actual prayer. There are many that ask, then how did they eat, and how did they survive, what did they do for a living, how did they, can they make meditate so much, and it says because of their great stature, their blessing would come that way, whatever it may be. But these are talking about people on great levels that they were able to meditate. And what was the concept of meditation? The prayer that they should be doing should connect them to a greater place. So this daily meditation connected to the concepts and the ideals of prayer. What does this then take us to the next step? As you can see, 
the question that we ask on page 6. Can you think of several ways in which meditation might advance Jewish goals? If we see that meditation is so ingrained in Judaism, if we see that meditation takes us back to so far in Judaism, then what are the goals of Jewish meditation? What are the purposes of them? Anybody? Feel free to comment. What would be the goal of meditation? Or Jewish goals, I should say. Spiritual growth, better prayer, connecting to God. So there's a, quite a few forms of Jewish, of Jewish meditation. And there's a variety of techniques and goals. But before we go further, let's just make what we have to make a few disclaimers and clear what we are accomplishing here. When we talk about Jewish meditation, it can mean a different things. And therefore, it's important to clarify as we begin what this means. Because in general, meditation comes in many different shapes and sizes. And just an interesting anecdote on the side, when the concept of meditation started in the 70s, especially with different cults doing um, different types of meditations which were based on Eastern philosophies, it became a very big debate. In Jewish law, in, according to Jewish law, if Jews were allowed to practice these types of meditations. Many of the meditations were based on uh, cult type of behaviors and using different phrases and phraseologies and verbiage that they were saying that was alluded to idolatry and that's especially that were taken from Eastern philosophies. And therefore, there was a, one famously known, there was a great scholar known as Rabbi Vadio Yosef, a big Sephardic scholar who then became the chief rabbi of Israel, who wrote a great response against meditation for that reason because it was considered some type of form of homage to idolatry. The, many people had questions about it, and one of the things that they would ask the Lubavitcher Rebbe about it, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes in a letter that we'll soon see, that I think we quote later on, which is that the concept of meditation in itself, there's nothing wrong, it's the way it's done and who they address and what deity they address in that meditation, and that's the problem, and therefore he then asked many scholars of meditation to be able to create a concept of Jewish meditation, which a Dr. Yehuda Landis at the time created a track, so to speak, of Jewish meditation. And therefore, it's important to know that while meditation comes in different shapes and sizes and the many other meditation groups and centers and meditations with various goals, for the sake of this course, let's just say that we're going to divide the meditation into three major parts and three different types of meditation that are out there. There are three categories of meditation. There's number one, what we would call foreign meditation, foreign to Judaism, and these are practices that are part of prayers of idolatry, paganism, as we were mentioning from Eastern philosophies, and many Eastern meditations utilize names of different deities who um, contain problematic elements for a Jewish practitioner for the very fact that it might be considered idolatry. And most commonly, these would be used by Eastern meditations that stem from those type of pagan religions. That is something you can imagine, that this is obviously not part of our course, and not what we're going to be discussing, and I can't encourage you more, more enough to avoid these type of meditations, as they are spiritually unhealthy and categorically hurtful to the Jewish soul. Then we have meditations which we would call neutral. These are meditation practices which have no a verbiage of any godly or paganism idolatry in it. They are designed to elicit gratitude, relaxation, athletic performance, and all the other different types of things. And there, of course, many of these have medical and health benefits. 
and even have been borrowed from Jewish context concepts, as you will see. And they are peppered every single or so often with different types of Jewish ideas and have practical and religious benefits to them. But ultimately, they did not come from Judaism. They're a meditation practice, which is sprinkled with some Jewish ideas. This course is not going to be about those meditations either. And we're not giving any opinion about those meditations, but they are simply not the subject of what we're going to talk about. What we are going to talk about is organically Jewish meditation, which is meditation practices that are organic to Judaism, rooted in Jewish text, based on Jewish text, practiced with Jewish text, and all helping us grow as spiritually connected to our Judaism. And that's what this course is built around and focuses on that category of meditation. Interestingly enough, when we talk about the word meditation, there are three different words that are generally used to describe. Now, this is not set in stone or based on any um, rule, but it's just a way of expressing three different ways of how we talk about, and for the sake of this course, we're going to use them to describe the three categories of meditation within Judaism. And each one of them, as we're going to go through the course, will play a different role and different options of what meditation is all about. And the first one is called Hit Bodedut. You can see it in figure 1.2 on page 6. The first one is called Hit Bodedut, which means transcendent, translates as seclusion, but it means transcendent meditation. The second type of meditation is called Hit Bonenut contemplation, which basically means the practice of contemplative meditation. And we're going to get in touch upon all these things. And finally, the third one is called kavana, which many of you may be familiar with, which is the word focus, mindful awareness and intentional meditation. And these are the three primary categories, which then we will then discuss how they all fit in and the practices that we have. And over the next six weeks, we'll be exploring these three key areas of meditation, how they play roles in our Jewish life, how they can help us live more deep and meaningful lives. And here's just a little bit of an outline of what we will be discussing over the next six weeks. The class today that we will be discussing is called Mind Control. We'll be learning about mind control exercises that can help us overcome negative feelings and emotions, and create more positivity in our life, which that will be a kavana meditation, to focus on a certain type of concept. Next week, which is lesson number two, which is spirituality, mind yourself, we'll be exploring the meaning of spiritual and how meditation can be a tool to experience, which would be in the Hebrew, hisboidus and hisboidus, contemplation and focusing on a specific situation. Lesson number three is living in the moment, mastermind. We'll be learning the depth of Jewish meditation, how it adds to mindfulness, to be able to value and to be fully present in the moment, which would take the Hispaninus, Contemplative, and Kavana and move it together. And lesson number four, which is mind your time, is bringing meditation into your life, applying Jewish meditation to practical areas of life, imbuing your everyday living with purpose and meaning. Lesson number five, mind your business, which is divine presence, learning to profound God's awareness around you, wherever you are, that God is there, and that which will help you lead to joy, resilience, and purpose, 
which is the hit bonenut, again, contemplation and looking into the actual action. And finally, lesson number six is mind and matter. We've learned the relationships between the meditation and action and how the mitzvot are anchors of meditation ideas and how we can bring the two together, mind over matter, again, the kavana meditation. So this is basically the outline of what we will be discussing over the next six weeks. So welcome to our journey. So for the most part, Jewish meditation focuses on enhancing our relationship with God and deepening our Jewish engagement, deepening who we are, looking deeper into ourselves, and looking within ourselves to grow as people. However, as a side benefit of spiritual goals, it it helps us also to have a more balanced life physically. That means the spiritual and the physical, as we're going to learn about today, have a very connected method and path, and therefore, living a spiritual life also helps us have a very balanced and healthy living, which is also a very important Jewish value. One of the most common reasons why people search for meditation is to reduce negative experiences. They have a lot of toxicity in their life, a lot of negative emotions that they're going through, and therefore a meditation in some type of way helps them to remove and is the terminology that many of you used, is to relax. And after all, we all want to be happy, but yet, inevitably, life throws many different circumstances which don't maybe allow for the room to experience it. And there's a lot of things that can sour our moods, whether it's anger, hurt, anxiety, worry, frustration, self-doubt, self um, putting ourselves down, whatever it may be. And all these things weigh on us and don't allow us to experience life and the things around it and enjoy it to its utmost. And today we're going to try to explore one of the fundamental underpinnings in Jewish meditation and how we can use that and harness it as a tool to overcoming negative emotion and toxicity in our life. And even more more than that, not only to overcome the negative emotion, but to radically change it and make it into something positive and cultivate that positive. So now take for a moment and think about a negative experience that you had in your life. Describe how that personal impact resulted and what the negative experiences came from it. Chances are that you probably didn't have a hard time thinking of a negative experience that happened in life. And chances are that overwhelmingly, you will think, what points out at you first, what comes first to your mind, is not necessarily the positive experience that you had, but automatically that negative experience that you had in your life. And many of us struggle with this recurring feeling that sometimes we're on this never-ending cycle that as much as I try, it keeps on glaring. It's coming as like a deer in the headlights. doesn't get away from me. And we sometimes seem to get away from it, but as soon as you get away from it, boom, it comes shooting at you again. How do we deal with that? The good news is that the struggle is not inevitable. And that we have the power to control our emotions. 
We are not hostages to our feelings. And as human beings, we have the innate power to overcome unwanted feelings and desires. And we see this very clearly in one of the Torah's commandments to the Jewish people. And it's as follows. Text number 3, page 8. As you approach battle, the Kohen shall come near, and this is from the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses is telling the Jewish people when they enter the Holy Land of Israel. Hear Israel. Today you are approaching the battle against your enemies. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed or terrified because of them. What is the Kohen telling the people? They're about to enter the land of Israel. They're about, Moses tells the Jewish people, you can enter the land of Israel, you're going to go to war, but don't be afraid. You're the minority. There are seven nations attacking you, and I'm telling you, don't be afraid. It's easy to say, don't be afraid. But how can he say, don't be afraid? The guy is afraid. The Kohen, who's like, so to speak, the chaplain of the army, instructs the soldiers not to be afraid. What do we see from here? The Torah seemingly expects that we can have mastery over something which is seemingly our own fears and feelings. Even if the fears are caused by real danger. There's an enemy out there that wants to kill me. But the Torah still says you have the power to overcome that fear. How does one do that? From the perspective of Judaism... What is the Torah telling us? That you absolutely have the power. The question is only, how do we go about it? They say a story about once Abe was talking to his friend. And he says, you know, I read in the New York Times about an unbelievable method to give yourself inner peace. So he says, yeah. He says, I tried it. It worked like a charm. They said, what was the method? He said, you should finish all the things you started. Don't leave things started. Don't leave things unfinished. So I went home and I looked around and I saw there was a bottle of red wine unfinished. I finished it. The bottle of white wine unfinished. Bottle of whiskey unfinished. I finished all the things. I felt beautiful peace. But what are the methods that we can employ if we have a real fear to get over those emotions? What can we do about it? What do we do about it? Anybody? Feel free to share. Think good, okay, think positive. What else? Self-talk. Self-talk, okay. Don't think about it. Don't think about it, okay. So we know psychological studies have always proven that the power of the mind has to be able to regulate and direct and what people should think. And especially for people with Trav PTSD or neurobiological studies have indicated that mental training helps the brain train to be able to think different ways and put them in certain scenarios and to be able to get them through. And they see even soldiers and Marines that they put them through not only a rigorous physical training, but a mental training to be able to get them over those fears. But while there are many very helpful um, steps and things of doing it, there's one simple powerful mindfulness technique which will help us stop thinking about negativity but before we get to that before we understand the technique let's understand how the human brain functions let's understand how the human functions and once we have a better understanding of the human functions we can then understand how to employ it and how to use it and many of you may have seen this graph before 
This graph, you can see it in your textbook on page 10, is what we would call the soul map. The top three are considered the three intellectual. The bottom seven are the seven emotional. These are the functions of what we would call the ten sefirot, the ten faculties of the soul. In the original, they are called moichin. The top is called moichin, which comes from the word intellect. And the bottom seven are called from the word midos, emotions. Our intellectual powers is what we would generally call our mind. It's that part that makes us think, process, rationalize. We use those, those three to collect data, analyze, judge, make determinations based on it. And this is our capacity to think objectively, understand ideas, improve and solve them. Our emotional capabilities is what we would call our heart. And therefore, this is the capacity that we have subjective feelings, things, positive and negative. We use them to love or to hate, to get excited or to get angry, to feel happy or to feel sad. That is what makes us feel drawn to certain ideas or reject certain ideas. By default, the soul operates in a linear way. Consciousness flows from the intellect to the emotion. And therefore, the way things are shaped is that I decide that I want to do something, and therefore I get excited to do it. When it works the other way up, it's sometimes you're ready for chaos. As you can see in text number 4, page 11, this is quoted from the Tanya. The human soul is divided into two categories, intelligence and emotion. The intellectual faculties, namely Chachma, Bina, Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, are referred to as the mothers of the source of emotions, for the emotions are the offsprings of the intelligence. So, if to put it in a practical way, our minds develop idea, we understand it, we are then ready to judge it, to apply it to a certain situation, and then naturally what happens is, when I'm ready to apply it, my heart starts feeling and I get excited about it. And therefore, it leads us to feel a certain way. So let's take the case of a person going to war. Why would a person be afraid to go to war? Because he understands the severity, he understands the danger, he analyzes the situation. They may be a stronger enemy. What are my chances of coming back? What do I have back home? I have a family and everything else. And therefore, then he says, what does that make me feel? Worried, scared, fearful. So when he, seizes up, when he sees the situation and he understands that this situation can either be beneficial to him or detrimental to him. And therefore, when we develop an understanding and how beneficial something is, we automatically like it and want it. When we see that we don't want it, it's because we realize it might not be good for us. Think about it for a moment if it would be the other way around. What is the reason that sometimes we get stuck in doing the wrong thing is because we only went with it with our heart and we didn't do it with our intellect. If I eat, if I'm a diabetic and I'm eating sugar is because I didn't think of the consequences. I like the donut, I ate it. But then there's another layer. And this is even sometimes a more important layer to a certain extent. Another layer to the soul that we need to learn about, which is the soul is spiritual. These ten faculties don't have the power on their own to express themselves. I can have the greatest intellect, then I can have the greatest feeling, but it's still inside of me. 
What gives me the ability to express my emotions and my feelings? What gives me the ability to say that when my mind understands and that my emotions follow, what do I do now? And with that, there are three garments, we call them, in Kabbalah. And these three garments are Machshava, Dibur, and Maisa. Thought, speech, and action. These are three garments of the soul which give me the capability to express that I, number one, what I love, how I love it, or why I hate it, and why and how I hate it. So each one of them gives me the capability, which is actually you. The garments are the things that we can put. Why is it called a garment? Because I can put it on, and I can take it off. I can love something today, and tomorrow not like it. I can hate something today, but tomorrow change my taste for it. It's not something which is always in me. My soul, my mind, and my heart are always within me. But the way I express my mind and heart can change and vary from time to time. So what we have over here is if I picture the 10 attributes like applications on your computer or on your smartphone, like an app. They're downloaded on your phone. They're taking up space over there on that screen. The garments are though now the interface of what am I going to use this app for? How is this going to make a difference? How is it going to apply? What are the functions of them? So when you're busy analyzing something right now, it means your thought is being accessed by one of those intellectual powers. It's enabling you to be able to come to a certain state. And at that moment, the other parts of your soul are probably dormant. When you're busy agonizing about something, what is that? Your emotional faculty is being activated. And what's happening then? The other capacities are inactive. What we see from here is that we will now see an exercise in this meditation. It's a little bit of a long exercise, I must point out, in this video, of where you will have the opportunity to actually go through these different levels of meditation and see the practice for itself going through the garments of the soul. I'm just going to minimize this for a moment to have a better video. Just one second. Just give me one second. Flowing through on 
to the screen of your consciousness. As you become aware of the thought, see if you can identify a feeling that arises as a consequence of that thought. I would like you to take yourself back to a moment, to a time when you might have been embarrassed, a situation of personal embarrassment. Try to locate that particular incident, refreshing it in your mind. Note all the points that cause the embarrassment. Become aware of the people who are present. And become acutely aware of your feelings of embarrassment at that time. Now, let's switch that thought. I want you to think back to a moment when you were supremely happy, ecstatic, somewhere in your life where you felt absolute joy. Recall that moment. Where were you? Who was there? Can you recall the voices, the colors, the background sounds? And now consider, where did that image of embarrassment of a few moments ago disappear? feelings went away because new thoughts were brought into the consciousness of your mind. Let's try that again. Now think back to a time where you hurt yourself physically, maybe injured yourself sprained an ankle. Take yourself back there and feel the pain. Simulate it. Recognize how you felt. Even complex feelings beyond the pain consequences and now turn your mind to 
your birthday party in your honor that you may have experienced as a child, as an adult. What is going on at the party? Who is there? Singing. Maybe a cake. Maybe candles. How do you feel? That same happiness has been recreated. What happened to that feeling of hurt and pain of a few moments ago when you hurt yourself back then? You changed your thoughts and therefore your feelings changed. Let's learn an important lesson. Moach Shalit Al-Halev. The mind determines the outcomes of the emotions. Change your mind and you change your feelings. When feeling down, depressed, change your thoughts. And in so doing, your whole emotional makeup transforms in the same moment. So using this model, oops. using this model of consciousness, what we're able to do is we're number one, we're able to identify. As again, using the three powers of the emotion of the, um, be able to identify the unwanted feeling, your understanding. Then we have the garment, and then we have the feeling. Number one, the process of the unwanted feeling, the emotion itself, the understanding that it gave birth to the emotion, and then the garment that facilitated the process, and then what happens is your actual feeling. So when we know about something, what gave us the ability to be able to get to where we're feeling is number one, that I understood it, that that's what I believed. I studied it. I understand it. I then now feel it. I then now feel it in my heart, but I can't express it until I actually have that feeling. And that's the three um, garments of the thought, speech, and action. Combating the negativity is now we have to try to combat this negative feeling head on. On the emotional level 
on the, or on the intellectual level. Stop it on some way that it shouldn't be able to affect us. And where it becomes a really challenging part if it's the only start at the emotional level because it's emotional. It's very difficult to start at that. And therefore, it may take a very strong effort and strength to shift your understanding and judgment because once you've set yourself in a certain way to be all of a sudden shift, shift ideas is very difficult. And once you're feeling and excited or upset about something, it also takes a strong discipline to be able to not to feel it. So what's the easiest way to stop it? A much easier way is to take the garment and switch it off. And therefore we learned that why they called garments of the souls and not the soul itself is because it's extremely important what it means that these thoughts aren't you. Your thoughts are not you. Just because you have a negative thought doesn't make you a negative person. I can switch that thought off. I can take that thought off. Because I'm wearing dirty clothes doesn't make me a dirty person. Because I'm wearing fancy clothes doesn't make me a wealthy person. It's only a garment. It describes who I am. It tells me who I am, as we'll see in a moment. But they don't define or control you. So if I have a negative thought, what I need to do is realize that that negative thought is not me. That negative emotion is not me. It is an external method that I can move on and take off. Let me share with you a story. A chassid once came to the Magad of Mizrich. The Magad of Mizrich was a disciple and the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism. And he asked him, what do I do? I get these negative thoughts in my mind all the time. And how do I control my thoughts? So the Chassid, the Magid told him, go to Rebzev Kittis. was a very famous, one of his elderly disciples. He says, go to him, he'll teach you what to do. Finally, after a long journey, the Chassid arrives at Rebzev Kittis' home. It's at the edge of town. It's a frosty, cold Russian winter night. He's standing outside the door and banging on the door, Rebzev, let me in. Nobody answers the door. He looks by the window where it is. He doesn't answer the door. He's knocking, let me in, let me in. He still doesn't let him in. Finally, after an hour, the guy's standing almost about being forced, but Rabzev comes to the door and welcomes him in. Rabzev says, what brings you to this side of town? So he says, the maggot sent me that you should teach me how to control my thoughts. So Rabzev says, actually, I just taught you. He says, what do you mean? He says, the same way I didn't open the door when I didn't want to open the door, you too have control when you want to allow those thoughts in and when you don't. Because the mind is in control. Text number five. Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi and the Tanya says it this way. The mind naturally controls the heart. Humans were created from birth with the ability to exercise willpower to control the derives of their heart so that they not be expressed in our behavior, speech, or thought. We are able to divert our attention completely from things of our hearts, crave to something entirely different. This is what we would call, so to speak, as meta-thinking. We have the ability to think about your thoughts or redirect them. But now that I know that I can redirect them, how does this help me deal with the unwanted feelings, with the negativity that I may have? So as you just saw, and as we saw in the video, for the most part, our minds wander. They go to different places. And especially when you're not doing anything, your minds wander and go all over the place. 
According to a recent research, an average person has more than 6,000 thoughts a day. How many of those thoughts do you remember? Almost none. Because our mind just keeps on going. And when our thoughts are unconscious, there are tools to be able in the hands of our minds and our heart, our experiences and our personality. And what happens? Those unconscious thoughts are beyond our control. Because I'm not putting my mind to it. I don't know what I'm even thinking about. It's just random things and happening, lightning rods that are going through in my mind. And they're all subconscious and therefore things that we probably don't react to, we're beyond our control. But we can think differently. We don't have to live in an unconscious state. We can live in a conscious state. We have the ability to think deliberately. We have the ability to be able to zero in, to focus and to narrow in on certain things. And therefore, what we have over here, the ability, is we have the control, we have the ability to take those negative thoughts, focus them, and bring them into positive thoughts. And if we cut off a negative thought, the negative feeling associated with that thought also gets cut off and will eventually dissipate. That means, why am I being excited or anxious about a certain idea? Is because I'm constantly thinking about it. The moment I stop thinking about it, automatically I don't feel it. I'll give you a little example. You ever notice when you're hungry? You, if you're hungry on a day that you're working and busy, you're not as hungry. A day that you're not busy, you're all of a sudden hungry all the time. You're always snacking. Why is it? Because when I'm busy, my mind is consciously thinking and focused. Therefore, I'm not thinking about other things. When my mind is not thinking, or unconscious, or it's just random things happening, it's not focused, what am I happening? I want this, I want that, I want this, and I can't find something to satisfy my needs. Even more so. When does an anxiety build up about any event, about going to the dentist? People have anxiety. And they keep on thinking about it, because they keep on checking their account. I have to go tomorrow, I'm already worried, I'm thinking, what do I have to do? But if I'm busy throughout the day, I don't even realize that I have a dentist appointment tomorrow and I don't have the anxiety. Why? Because my mind is focused and concerned about other things. It's not random. So what we see over here is focusing our mind, focusing especially on something positive, will ultimately make the negative feeling dissipate. There's a, there was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Shloim Afreidus. He was a renowned Chabad Chassid during the first half of the 19th century. His daughter actually married the son of the third Chabad Rebbe, Ibn Achmed al-Shnerson, known as the Tzemach Tzedek. And in the late 1820s, he penned a letter to the Tzemach Tzedek, which was then the third Chabad Rebbe, in which he expressed about his worries about his declining health. And that he felt powerless, but to pray to God that he remove this mental anguish that he has of his failing health. And he had an anxiety and he was troubled by the fact that his health was failing. The Tzemach Tzedek wrote a fascinating response, criticizing Rabbi Freyda's sole reliance on prayer and provided a technique, which we can all learn from, how to deal when we are going through a, maybe a negative experience and how the mental struggles can help us, based on what we just spoke about. Text number six, page 14, this is the response that the Tzemach Tzedek gave to this chassid. Even if we are emotionally afraid, we are able to divorce our thought, speech, and action from that emotion. 
The essential thing is not to contemplate, to discuss the fear at all, but to, per, but to do the perfect opposite. Immediately upon letting go of the thought entirely, the fear will dissolve on its own, at least at the very least. It will become instantly dormant and not felt in the body. Then over the course of several days, it will completely dissolve to the point that will not enter our mind at all. Removal from the thoughts leads to dissipation and the fear because emotions are entirely reliant on intellectual focus of their existence, which requires active thought. Therefore, by removing our thought from the matter, the intellectual power is withdrawn from their emotion with the result that the emotion ceases to be activated. It is worth training yourself to remove all negativity for we must rid ourselves from fear, including justifiable fear, as I wrote. This is certainly true in your case, where there is nothing to worry about whatsoever, thank God, in the terms of your health and financial situation. What the, previous, what the Tzemach Tzedek was telling him here is, that even when justifiably you have what to worry about, your health is deteriorating, what are you going to do at the end of the days? How are you going to prepare for the future? Seemingly you should be afraid, but he tells him no. When you think negatively, when you think about that fear, what you're doing is you're freezing. And you're not able to be conscious about what you're meant to do. And instead your emotions are exacerbating and making you worry. And creating that anxiety. And therefore, in training yourself to remove negativity, even if this fear would be justifiable, you have a better ability to think consciously and to feel healthy. If we were consciously aware of our thoughts, we can stop what we don't want to effectively to cut off our attention from those things that are affecting us negatively. And what is that? Because without the garment of thought, the mind cannot function. And when the mind doesn't function, the heart doesn't function. And therefore, those negative feelings won't be there. There's a story which is told many times over which depicts this exact item which was brought down into practically contemporary way. The first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, had to escape his home country, his home city called Lyozhna out of fear of Napoleon coming to attack him because he was a, um, he supported the Tsar at the time and therefore Napoleon was, uh, he was an, uh, Napoleon looked at him as an arch enemy. However, he had one of his Hasidim who were very, he had like a photographic memory and was fluent in seven or eight languages very well. And he was able to remember special geographical maps and all that kind. And his name was Ramosha Meisels. Ramosha Meisels was able to infiltrate within Napoleon's upper echelon. And Ramosha Meisels was an advisor because he spoke Russian and French. He was able to be served as a translator for the top brass of Napoleon's army. Thereby knowing exactly what Napoleon's next route was going to be. To warn the Altarebbe and by extension the Tsar of what was going to happen. One time, while Ramosha Meisels was standing in the room together with all the top brass of Napoleon's army, peering over the maps that are going on there, Napoleon walks in and puts, sees Ramosha Meisels there, puts his hand on, on Ramosha Meisels' chest and says in French, you're a spy. To feel if his chest was beating very quickly. Ramosha Meisels was able to control how himself, and Napoleon let him go and everything else. Ramosha Meisels later recounted the story. And he said, it was the Aleph, that means the ABCs of Hasidism, that saved his life. 
which was mind over matter. That the thought is a garment and I can switch it off. And therefore the feeling of anxiety and worry and fear did not cause his chest to palpitate, his heart to palpitate and become very quick. And because of that, his life was saved and to carry on his duties. Now, it's important to note that this process in controlling our thought doesn't mean that we're battling unwanted thoughts or actively attempting not to think them, or else it won't work. The approach has to be to stop the negative thoughts in its tracks. That when a negative thought pops into a person's mind, we shouldn't start saying, well, maybe if I start doing it this way, a negative thought is a negative thought that has to be wiped out because the moment you start entertaining that negative thought, it's a quicksand and you get sucked into it and there's no way out of it. The moment I become in a negative state, everything I look at, all of a sudden you put on dark glasses, everything you see becomes dark. When something happens to you that triggers you in causing a spiral of negative thoughtfulness, the number one thing we need to do is isolate that idea that you're going through now. Like imagine you're on the telephone and this guy's trying to sell you a, what is it, the, home, the, the car warranty. Oh, you're going to start negotiating with the guy why you don't need the car warranty. What's the first thing you do? You hang up. The same idea is when the negative thought comes in, when you start on saying, maybe I need the car warranty, maybe I don't need the car warranty, the first thing we need to do is hang up and say, this is, knock it out. Why? Because we have the ability, as a garment, take off that shirt. That shirt's dirty, throw it out. In which we talk about and we say, because what happens is, we all of a sudden become into a state of a struggle. And when we come into a state of a struggle, even if it's one clean person fighting a dirty person, what happens? You become dirty as well. You get taken down. Even more so. Trying not to think about it is also a problem. If you say, I'm not going to think about that thing, you're basically thinking about it. Think about it. Try this exercise. It's pretty cool. Take one minute now for a moment. Think about whatever you want. But don't think about a white polar bear. Every time you think about a white polar bear, clap. <laughs> Try it. Okay? Don't think about anything else. but a, Don't think about whatever you want, but not about a white polar bear. When you think about a white polar bear, clap to show that you did it. Time on. Okay, so you got to clap. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure you all saw that the polar bear was always there. I was once in a class where a guy says, don't look here. And everybody looked there, right? You see? It's also your kids coming and you're lying on this brand new couch and your child's coming over with a cup of chocolate and you say, don't spill it. And what happens? It spills. Well, that's why one of the important things, you know, if a kid's holding a knife, don't hold that knife. You have to walk over and take the knife away. Why? Because when they scream, automatically something's going to happen. The same idea is when we talk about, when you say, stop thinking about it or not to think about that thing what happens is you're automatically going to think about it and therefore what we have to do is since we can't just stop thinking what we need to do is we're going to move to the next step which is positive thinking yes even a justifiable fear as we just mentioned is a negative That's, so where's the fear? Say it again? Where's the fear? Well, if I know somebody's coming at me because I'm at, 
So how is the fear going to help you? How is it going to help me? Yeah. That's not fear. On the contrary, if you're going to do it out of fear, you might strike the person before he even strikes you, or before he even comes close to you, or because you're going to imagine... Let's, let's take it a step further. You're going to imagine that he wants to strike you. Why? Because you're so fearful. That's exactly what paranoia is. What the problem with paranoia is. I totally disagree with you. Okay. The concept of fear is even a justifiable fear. When we are fear... And as the very famous saying is, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear in itself is a paralyzing or can ruin a person in their conscious way of thinking. That's yes. Fear. And even rational fear. Absolutely not. Okay. Okay, so let's say, let's go back to the example that we brought from the Torah. The example from the Torah was that the Kohen told the people that are going to war, don't be afraid. Yes, right? What did he say, don't be afraid? He said, don't be afraid. The guy is going to war, his life's on the line. What do you mean, don't be afraid? I can tell you all the excuses. But why, what is the Torah telling us? Because I have an ability, wherever I am, in any circumstance... Well, let's say a person's going to a surgery and they have real reason to be afraid. They're going to be put under the knife. Who knows what's going to happen afterwards? Real reason to be afraid. What did that fear help them in preparing for the surgery? Absolutely nothing. Now you can say it's justifiable that they should have that fear because it's an automatic conscious awareness that when I think about what's going to happen to me, I'm going to be, a daily emotion is going to be created. But what does that emotion create? And anxiety, fear, and all the other paralyzing effects that come with it. So what I need to do is, I need to be able to remove, turn off that fear. How we're going to do it was the next step. But I need to turn off that fear, and I have the ability to turn off that fear. So now when I walk into that surgery, I know I'm going to have the surgery. I know the surgery. I'm not, I'm not living in a la-la land thinking that nothing's going to happen, but I prepare accordingly. I know what's going to happen, not because I'm fearful, because I am planned. I'm scheduled. Yes. Isn't the fear still there? It's like walking down that dark street. You're still going to have that fear, but I'm going to sit there and I'm going to take out my keys to poke them in the eye. So there's two types of fear. So there's two types. I, I want to continue, but I want to move on to the next step because we still have a lot more. The concept of fear in general <laughs> There's no such thing. A person who doesn't have fear in their life, we talk about fear of heaven, right? Fear, there's awe in this fear. Let's put it that way. Fear is paralyzing. Awe is motivational. If it's going to paralyze you, then it's something which shouldn't be done. Let's put it that way. Let's put it in this way. Fear and scared, if you want to put it in a better way. Rabbi, you know, going back to the first thing where the cone says, don't yeah. be afraid, don't be afraid. I had a different view of that. I thought it's like the white bear thing. So you would only think of, of being afraid if someone comes to something. I would prefer, I'm not saying this. Positive pep talk. Uh, well, positive pep talk uh, 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 and action. You're, you're, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. So we have this covered, we have this covered. And give the people some idea that there's a plan Okay, so that of the problem that they're facing, even if it may not overcome. So the reason number one, let's we only brought that in to show that we can control our fear. But if you want to talk in the context of the verses, there, 
it tells all the people that have to not go to war, and therefore he eliminates the people who may be sort of scared of cats, people that just got married, people that just built a house, in that context of preparing for war. But let's move on to the next step. Being, okay, that's the next step we're going to talk about. The next part, as we're going to see, is, you see, now we're just talking about removing the negativity. With understanding the next part, we'll now see how with the questions that you mentioned about the subconscious fear that you may have is taken care of. The bottom line is, our mind, in Hebrew they say, tamid. our mind is constantly working. There is no, if your mind is not working, you're not alive. Your mind is always working, your mind is always active. And therefore, if I rid myself of a negative, a negative thought, I need to replace it with something. A person can only have one thought at a time. And therefore, as much as I'm going to say I'm not afraid, so to speak, as you're going to say, subconsciously, I'm going to be afraid. Why? Because all I'm thinking about is walking down this dark alley. So what do I need to do? I need to activate. I need to activate thinking about something else. And what do I need to activate thinking about? Is that the original thought process in my mind needs to be discarded. So I can bring in a new thought process. Look at text number seven. Text number seven, continuing in that letter. The primary method of removing worrying thoughts from your mind is by redirecting your mind towards other matters. You can replace them with thoughts of necessary material matters that bring you joy and you contemplate in God's Torah that delights the heart. The latter is best achieved through creating a fixed schedule of Torah study in which particularly affected by with a study partner. Over here, what he, sees, what he tells us is, what we need to do is, number one, remove the negative emotion. But when I remove the negative emotion, I'm going to leave a vacuum. So what do I need to do immediately? Replace it with a positive emotion. How do I replace it with a positive emotion? Think of a positive experience, a joyful time, an exciting time, something that will bring the light into your mind. And of course, what's the best way of bringing the light into your mind is through the study of Torah. So what I have over here is, what is the process of my feeling? I have that understanding. It creates a garment. I ultimately have that feeling. But then how do I remove that negative thought? Once I remove that negative thought, I then sustain it with a positive thought, a thought of learning Torah. And that's why it's so part of Judaism that Jewish people always had on their mind, wherever they were, books of Torah study, always memorizing, whether it's words of the Torah, words of Tillin, words of Mishnayis. And therefore the Tzermach Tzedek suggests to have the idea of the Torah that a person can meditate on. Therefore, when he does feel a negative thought, the Torah study brings him joy and therefore is a welcome distraction from the fear and anxiety that he may have. And therefore what we find over here is the positive effect that we have here, the potency of the positive effect is not just a physical and a psychological life act. In fact, the Hasidic masters teach us something even more radical. Because the way we think in this world, the positive effects that we have actually shape and determine the way things play out. Positive thinking doesn't just make us feel better doesn't just make us feel better inside. They actually create, and this is what Yael, you were alluding to before, the positive thinking actually create a certain type of circumstance. And here's what the Tzemach continues in text number 8. To the contrary, you should speak and act in a matter that projects positivity. Text number 8 on page 17. As described above, so that these positive emotions will be established within you. In this way, a spirit of joy and good-heartedness 
will descend upon you from above. I say this on the basis of a teaching that I received from my holy grandfathers of the blessed re- memory, who shared an insight authored by the Maggot of Mizrich in the verse, like a person's appearance upon it from above. The Maggot would read the verse, according to the feelings of a person displays, down in this world, like as a person's appearance. So that is the nature of the which rests upon above, upon him from above. In the light of this teaching, my grandfather, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, did not permit me, I'll just explain this in a moment, did not permit me to sing a melancholy tune during the evening prayer. After I had completed the prayer, he explained his reasoning for objecting to my melody as shared above inside in the name of the Maggot of Blessed Memory. The Maggot taught us that what we do in this world, like a person's feelings down here, we are a mirror image and reflection of what happens above us. What we do in this world, our thoughts, our attitudes, attract experiences of the same kind from above. So if we are going to be in a melancholy, in a very somber, in a very negative mode, we are going to attract negative experiences in our life. This is what it is. We are inviting reciprocation from above. The story that he mentions at the end is an interesting anecdote, interesting story in short. It's talking about in the time when the Alter Rebbe, as I mentioned before, was running away from Napoleon and he was already in a place called Hadich and it was a very, so to speak, anxious, fearful, if you want to call it, time and he was worried and concerned that any negative type of behavior will bring about any negative type of um, reaction, so because every action brings a reaction from above. And therefore, even though he wanted to sing a song, he said the only song he should sing should be a joyful sing, a positive song, like this we can attract more positivity. It's interesting that now we're in the month of Adar, which is the month of joy and a month of happiness. And the concept is that when we are happy, we not only does happiness help ourselves, but happiness also attracts other people to be happy and also brings a positive light from above. Because at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, we are attracting and reciprocating, we create, so to speak, a mirror image, as we'll see over here. The Hasidic version of, so to speak, the law of attraction is not just a new age theory, but it's a real spiritual chance that we can appreciate something. And here we know, as we explained before, there are different ways how God transcends into the world. God has taken this finite world to be able to bring it into different emotions, and Kabbalah teaches us that God is infinite and singular. How then did he come into so many different capabilities and so many different type of emotions and ten different sefirot? So what he did was he channeled his energy through these ten faculties that we on this world should be capable of having a relationship with God and we can interact with the world. Every single one of these sefirot, for example, if it's kindness, severity, compassion, each one of them are combined of all of them. That means within kindness, there is all the other ten as well. Within severity, there is the, all the other ten of them as well. So it is so many multiple ways of interacting within the materialistic world. For example, here's the Kabbalah gives the, the Medrash gives the following example in text number nine. There's an analogs to a king who had an empty glasses. The king told himself, if I pour hot water in them, they will burst. If I pour freezing water in them, they will crack. What did the king do? He mixed hot water with frigid water and poured the blend into the glasses. Similarly, God said, if I create the world with an attribute of compassion alone, people will be unconcerned with the consequences of their actions. If I use the attribute of judgment alone, the world will not survive the judgment of honest scrutiny. Rather, I will create it with a blend of the attribute of judgment and attribute of compassion, and I hope it will endure. This delicate balance 
is what we what's looking and what God is telling us to do. Huh? We have the balance that we need to take the balance of the ten sefirot. The world is created with ten faculties. Our soul has ten faculties. The way we create that balance is what gives us back. So if we are focused in severity, focused in negativity, automatically what's going to be the reaction is going to be severity as well. In the words of the Zohar, the Zohar says that this, the Zohar is the Bible of Kabbalistic philosophy, tells us this. Come and observe, text number 10, powerful words he says here. Our world is always ready to receive the spiritual flow that emanates from above. The upper worlds provide in accordance with the emotional state below. If the state below is joyous, then correspondingly abundance flows from above. And if the below is one of sadness, then correspondingly is the flow of blessing is constricted. We therefore direct it, serve God with joy, because mortal joy elicits correspondence with supernal joy. I am sure you can notice in your life, and you will see, that there are times when you are upset, down, and things don't just work the same. But you put some upbeat music, get excited, you have that joy, and all of a sudden you start thinking, you start broadening your horizons, you start coming out with different things. I always point to a story, it sounds like a little uh, nonsense story, but I saw it actually happen in front of my eyes. I, many years ago, I went to this elderly couple's house to put up mezuzahs. And they had this beautiful mezuzah case that they bought from Israel. And they wanted to put it up to put the mezuzah in that one. I came there to put up the mezuzah, and all of a sudden, they couldn't find the mezuzah case. And of course, the husband starts blaming the wife. You put it there. The wife starts blaming the husband. You put it there. And all of a sudden, a whole, I walk into World War II, and they go, where are the mezuzah cases? So I said, stop one second. And I take the husband, I said, let's go for a dance. And we start dancing. And while we're dancing, he says, oh, here it is. Why? Because they were so engrossed in the negativity. They couldn't think for a moment where they put it. The moment you remove that negative thought and you put into something positive, all of a sudden, it corresponds from above the same. And you'll see this very clearly in almost every think back into the times in your life where you were successful, happy, was because you were a happy person, those happy for happiness came to you. People that are happy, people that are positive, attract positivity. And if we're going to be negative and blaming things, then nothing will be good in life. Nothing that anybody can do. Even, it's like the guy that says, the guy meets his friend one day and says, no, so how's life, how are things going? So the guy tells him, oh, well, last week I had an uncle from far away, died and left me $45,000 in his will. He says, no, sounds good. He says, the week before I had an uncle who uh, left me $20,000. He says, and just last week, my great aunt died and she left me a quarter of a million dollars. He says, so why are you so upset? He says, because this week, nothing. <laughs> It's all a matter of perspective. You want to look at negativity, it's always going to be there. And this is, the, this is the concept that we bring about and achieve that what we think relates and creates a mirror image in our life. Taking this a little bit even further, the Baal Shem Tov taught us that just even focusing our minds can affect and elicit a divine response. Think about it like uh, television channels for a moment. The different stations are constantly playing different things. But you'll notice that a guy that always watches, I don't know, one station will come up with one way of thinking. And somebody that watches another station automatically has another way of thinking. And in fact, television is made in a way to be able to train people to think according to the way the, so to speak, the honest, uh, or what do you call it, uh, non-biased commentators 
are saying some things. But we all know any person that watches a certain channel comes out with one way of thinking, especially after watching it after an extended amount of time. So the more we think about something, the more we become aligned or thought, or we become part-programmed, if you want to call it, in that type of method. And therefore, you are what you think. In the words of the Baal Shem Tov, he says it in this way, text number 11. The psalmist says, states, one who trusts in God will be enveloped in kindness. We can infer the reverse as well. One who is constantly anxious in punishment associates himself with strict judgment that can lead to negative consequences, God forbid. In the line of the verse, their fears I will bring to them. We become attached to whatever we contemplate. If we contemplate a matters associated with severity, we become attached to judgment. If we trust in God's kindness, our souls will become attached in kindness, and we will indeed be enveloped in kindness. One of the basic teachings of the Baal Shem Tov was, in contrast to the different people of his time, was that the way we relate to God should be in a loving, kind way, and God will automatically have that mirror reflection. There's a very famous story of the Baal Shem Tov was walking with one of his students, Rabbi Nachamendel of Bar, and the guy was thirsty, needed a cup of water. So the Baal Shem Tov talks to, turns to him and says, do you believe that God can bring you a cup of water wherever you are and you may need it? So he says, of course I believe, but now I'm very thirsty. And while they're walking, all of a sudden a fellow water carrier is walking with two buckets on his shoulder and it says, it offers them a cup of water. So they ask this fellow, how did you end up here in the forest? Nobody else is here. How, did you know we needed water? So he says, no, I lost my horses. I'm looking for them. The Baal Shem Tov turns to the Chassid and says, you see, when you trust in God and you create that positive effect, God delivers. It's all a matter of how we develop ourselves. We shift our thoughts and our alignments and our positive thoughts automatically channel a positive energy. And this is something that all of us can do. Not only all of us can do, but it's actually part and parcel of Judaism. That means what's the first thing we do when a Jewish person wakes up? We say a prayer. But what's the prayer we say? Thank you God for returning my soul. I did nothing. All it is that I'm on top of the ground, not the other way around. And I'm already thanking God. What do I do next? I thank God that my plumbing system is working. What do I do next? I thank God that I can open my eyes, that I can get clear dressed, that I can stand up on the floor, that I'm this and I'm that. It's obvious. Why do I thank God for? Because when I put my mode in a positive action, right when I wake up in the morning, I'm putting myself in a positive streak. I am thankful, I am appreciative, and I see things in a whole different light. I'm acknowledging and thanking God for them, and it immerses myself into something better in being appreciative and recognizing the good that's in everything. Recognizing that God is giving me what I need and I will get what I need because I'm in a positive state of mind. And it's so ingrained and that is the first step to any person in any way who is having any trouble in his life, who feels negative anxiety in any shape or form. The first thing that I can tell you is a recipe for success. Say the Modani every morning. Your life will change. Say the Modani. It's one little phrase. Wake up in the morning with a conscious appreciation that you are here, that you are alive, that you woke up today. Your day will feel more successful. You'll realize that you have a mission. Why did you wake up? You have a purpose. You'll be thankful for that purpose. You'll be positive that you actually had that purpose. So what we see over here what we see in this entire, what we learned to just a little takeaway, I'm going to act, oops, what happened here?
That's what happens when you go too long, right? What happened? Just one second. There we go. Yeah. So, number one, meditating and the positive reshapes our way we feel and elicits a positive response from God. I'm just going to... So what we have over here, takeaways from today's class, is number one, be aware that you are in control of your thoughts. Practice being aware and actively controlling your thoughts at any given moment of the day. Take a moment and think for a moment, I have the right to turn off and to turn on. That even gently shift your thinking deliberately to thinking about something positive. Even if you're not thinking about something negative, take a moment during the day and change your thought and say, put on, a clean clo- put, put, put on a clean shirt, so to speak, in your mind. And realize that you will have control, mind over matter. Number two, invest your mind in wholesome things. Look to be doing something positive. Spend a few moments every day reading, studying, thinking a Torah idea. Our mind wanders, and if it's not focused, and if it's wandering all over the place, it's going to automatically come up with things that are negative. And if we're not focused, like this, you always have something to go back to. If your mind is wandering, think about a good idea. Take a good line, a nice line, something positive, energizing, or some type of um, line that you saw, quote, that you can live by, or that makes you always think about, that will bring you into a positive mode. And finally, set a time daily for positive meditation. Dedicate a few minutes each morning, whether it's saying modani in the morning, saying the morning blessings, thanking God your plumbing system is working, whatever it is. Take, find something in your life, that whatever works for you, to meditate on the wonderful gifts that God has given you in your life. And you can use the text of the morning blessings as a template, or anything it may be. And even if it's just two minutes, you will see how it drastically changes your perspective in eliminating negativity in your life. Any toxicity that comes in our life is because there's a vacuum, there's an emptiness, and, or a lack of control of what's flying there. But when the moment we take control, it's like putting on a shirt and taking off a shirt. By recognizing that we have that option to always fall back on something positive in our life and being thankful, all of a sudden, we will have a more joyous, relaxed, serene, and peaceful day, week, and life. Here's a little recap of just what we learned today. Lesson one. Do you mind the surprising powers of Jewish meditation? One. Meditation is an authentic Jewish practice that plays a large role in Jewish life. Two. We have control over our feelings and have the capacity to overcome negative feelings and experiences. Three, we have the ability to be in control of our thoughts and can choose what we think about at any given moment. Four, our thinking feeds our emotions. By getting rid of negative thoughts, we cut off negative feelings. Five, meditating on positive thoughts develops a positive mindset and positive emotions. Six, positive meditation actually impacts the world around us and elicits a positive response from God, which shapes reality 